Well, thank you, Luke. Thank you for being here. It's good to be with you in this beautiful place. It's a great joy and privilege to uh, come from murky England into this beautiful place and enjoy uh, being among you. So I love your worship. I love the songs you sing and uh, so engaging with God in this context. So thank you for being here. I do believe uh, God has put on the heart a passage to talk on in connection with prayer. I guess that uh, James, when he wrote his epistle, uh, he talks about prayer, and he could have illustrated from many, many characters. He could have illustrated from Jacob or Moses or Daniel or Samuel or Hannah. These extraordinary people in the Bible who pray and see uh, phenomenal things happen. But in James chapter 5, he says, Elijah was a man just like us, and he prayed, and it didn't rain for three years. And then he prayed again, and it rained. And uh, he's just saying, look, come on, prayer is a mighty, mighty weapon. And uh, we must uh, really learn and find the inspiration that comes. I'm very aware that in our own hearts, so often we feel, oh, dear, prayer. And we feel this sort of cloud come over us, or it's something I ought to do. And uh, it's a hard job, and sometimes a difficult one. And, and we can feel kind of condemned, and that's not my intention. I don't, I don't believe in that. I believe in the grace of God that has justified us freely because of what Jesus has done. And so I'm not praying to somehow impress God or to impose on him that, hey, I'm worth it, but coming because Jesus has opened a door for us. So I'm going to read a short passage in 1 Kings chapter 18 where you get the story of Elijah and the illustration of his praying. Okay, so 1 Kings 18, I'm going to pick up at verse 41. This is after the events of there have been some three and a half years of no rain at all. And then he prayed and fire fell from heaven. And then he says, hey, it's going to start raining again after this three-year drought. And he says in verse 41, Now Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there's a sound of a roar of a heavy shower. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, crouched down on the earth, put his face between his knees, and he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the east, toward the sea. So he went up, looked, and said, There's nothing. He said, Go back seven times. It came about on the seventh time that he said, Behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. He said, Go up. Say to Ahab, prepare your chariot, go down, so that the heavy shower doesn't stop you. In a little while, the sky grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. He girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. Holy Spirit, we invite you, we call upon you, to come and be our teacher. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. When the Holy Spirit comes, he'll lead you into truth. So come, Holy Spirit. Come be our teacher. Please come and rest upon us. Give me words to say. Anoint our ears to hear you. May we be strengthened and encouraged. Come and do us good, we pray, Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Um, and just to remind you of some of the historical background of Elijah, Elijah came on the scene at a terrible time. Sorry? Oh. Okay, if you like. I'll take this one off then. A bit hot around the ears anyway. Okay, thank you. Can I pull that off the back? Thank you. Thank you so much. So he came at a time when the nation had lost its ways, and it was only 58 years since Solomon's reign. And you can read through the story of kings, one king replacing another, one worse than the previous. So they had really lost their way. And it's hard to believe that only 58 years since Solomon, there was King David's great reign, then Solomon, and, and the nation was established as a very powerful empire. And they are God's nation, God's people. They are meant to be the light of the world, the nation that God had committed himself to. That's the way God was going to speak to the world, through this nation. And now within this nation, it's illegal to worship Yahweh. Now they're worshiping Baal. And King Ahab had made it illegal. Jezebel, the force behind the throne, they had raised up their prophets. It's an amazing thing to think that this people are now no longer worshiping the God of creation, the God of the Bible. They turned away from him completely. Now, suddenly, I love the way Elijah is introduced earlier. Now, Elijah, this man coming, as it were, from the presence of God. He says, the God before whom I stand. That's what the church is meant to be like, the people who stand before God and, and, and speak into a generation. My generation, yeah, drifted far away from God. It's quite hard for me in England to see how things have changed, how now it would be illegal for a nurse to pray for someone in hospital or for a teacher to speak to students about Jesus. It's illegal. You don't do that kind of thing. Things have radically, radically changed. And there needs to be a great kind of Elijah company who stand before God and pray to God. So Elijah is a figure often turned to because he's associated with the coming of rain, which is often associated with revival days. After drought, after weariness, there comes life and energy when the rain comes. And Elijah then can teach us so much about prayer. And I'm praying that we will learn as we look at this passage together. So the first thing we see is that he is proclaimed, it's going to rain. And then it says he withdrew. He went up the mountain to be alone with God. So the first thing I notice, he withdrew from the crowd. And in that sense, he's very similar to Jesus. You find in the life of Jesus, he often withdrew from the crowd. So the uh, disciples who are with Jesus, and I guess often sleeping rough in the open air as they did, nowhere to lay his head, they would wake in the morning and I think, where's Jesus? Oh, there he is praying again. It's often recorded in the gospel stories. He withdrew to pray. At one time when he'd healed many people and fed thousands, they tried to take him and make him king, but he withdrew to pray. It's one of the characteristics of the life of Jesus that he would withdraw. No one else was going to establish his agenda. Something for us to learn. You can let other things establish your agenda. Other situations impose their agenda on you. Jesus refused that. He kept on withdrawing to be with his Father. He kept on withdrawing to pray. 
And he modeled that in such a way that when the early church got started and there was an enormous outpouring of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 saved on a day, goes up to 5,000. God is moving sovereignly, great numbers in the churches. And then it says, hey, some social problems arose. There were differences of opinion about how people should be fed. The, the widows, the Greek widows, the Jewish widows, is this fair? Should it be done better? And, and they say, hey, we should appoint guys full of the Holy Spirit to look after this. Very important. But we will give ourselves to prayer. That was the mark of these early guys. They'd been with Jesus. They'd watched his life. They, they want to learn how to withdraw and be alone with God. So they won't let their agenda be imposed upon them. We'll appoint people to look after that. But these are now carrying on the work that Jesus started, so they will give themselves to prayer. It's one of the marks of the Savior, withdraw. So Jesus modeled it, and Jesus taught it. He said, when you pray, in Matthew 6, it says, go into your inner room, close the door, and speak to your Father in secret. Your Father, who sees you in secret will reward you openly. Your father sees or knows everything you need. Now, it's interesting that the first time prayer is referred to in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 4, where it says men began to call upon the name of the Lord. All right? That's the first reference to prayer in the Bible. They began to call upon the name, the name of the Lord. We've been singing about how he's worthy of his name. The Bible when it speaks of names, it's not just a little title. It's the name tells us something. And God has many names. And so when we pray, we're not whistling in the dark. God says, this is my name. You can approach me on the basis of who you see me to be. So he says, for instance, I am the Lord who provides. We find Hagar running away, thinks she's going to die. She's been used. She's been deserted. Now she and her little child... Nobody needs her, nobody wants her, and God speaks. And she says, oh God, you see me. And this name of God, the Lord who sees me, is in the Bible. And it's wonderful. The Bible's a living book of relationships with God and human beings. It's not just a systematic theology. Here are the names of God. One, two, three. No, no, no. They, they appear in the story. As someone has an experience, they think, oh God. And suddenly God steps in and says, I see you. Wow, that's the name of God. He sees me. And then another time, Abraham's in a time of terrific crisis, and the Lord says, the Lord will provide. And there are many such names. The Lord, our healer. And so, we, hey, there's a name. There's a name. A man called Edmund Clowney, a Bible lecturer, he says this, uh, in America, the word name, it's a, we, we use the word handle. It's a kind of co cockney way or a human way of saying it. Handle, what's your handle? What's your name? And you can get hold of God by saying, Lord, this is what you said. This is what you said. Yours is your name. This is who you are. So we're not whistling in the dark. We're not looking for a mystic experience. God has revealed himself by his name. A man called Hudson Taylor started a great missionary society, the China Inland Mission. And as it happens, he, he wrestled with God on the beach where I live in Brighton, England, when he was in his 20s. He said, Lord, would you provide for us? If I went on an independent mission into the heart of China, would you provide? And he got, I'm the, I'm the Lord who provides. And he built a great mission on that, on that verse, the Lord will provide. 
Hallelujah. And he opened a, he opened a bank account. He wrestled. See, individuals wrestle with God. That's what this is all about. Individuals wrestle with God. A young man in his 20s, he sees all the missionaries are just on the coast of China. No one's going inland to these millions of people. He's getting stirred up about it. And he, he's in a church meeting and he left the meeting, went out, walked up and down on the beach. He said, Lord, can I do this? Will you do this? Just in his 20s. Lord, and he got, got through with God. Yes, you will provide. And he went in and he, he opened a bank account the next day and put five pounds in it. Thousands of pounds would go through that account in years to come. But a man of faith laid hold of God and God said, this is who I am. Call upon the name of the Lord. Well, how God has revealed himself. Now in the New Testament, Jesus said, talk to your father. I mean, that is most wonderful. Father, this is such a privilege. And he uses the word father three times in that verse. Go to your father. Your father sees. Your father knows. Talk to your father. Get alone and talk to your father. I want to encourage you to build that into your life. To get alone and talk to your father. Now, I read a book by a man called J.O. Fraser, who was a China inland missionary and saw revival. Amazing, tremendous man of prayer. And he says this. I feel like I've found a business that really works. This is what really works. So I'm going to give my best energies to it. So he says, find what is your best time. And for many of us, our times are different. My best time now is morning. It used not to be. I used to come alive in the evening. Now I'm of a certain age in the evening. I'm a waste of time. So I'm better in the morning. And yet I know too that young mums, the morning's terrible. Kids and children and get them off to school. and That's the last time. And so find a time. Find a time. D.A. Carson says it's not that we don't want to pray, it's that we don't plan to pray. So we need to know that that's my time. That's when I do it. Get in the door, shut the door and be with your father. Now, if you're anything like me, shutting the door doesn't answer it because my brain goes straight through the walls. So, so what, do I, I need, what I do is I have a little pad and pen. So if suddenly I think, what about that? Ah, oh, yeah, no, no, write it down. We'll deal with that later. So otherwise, my brain goes off in all kinds of tangents. So that's one of the ways I kind of shut the door. And I want to be with my father. And prayer, beloved, is meeting with your father first. See, some people say this, when you pray, start with confession. That's a foolish idea. I mean, it sounds like, yeah, yeah, clean the decks first. But it's a big mistake. It's a big mistake. Jesus said, when you pray, say, Father. You see, when you start, well, if you start with sin, the Bible says this. We have an enemy. He's called the accuser of the brethren. It's in the book of Revelation. The accuser of the brothers and the sisters who accuses us day and night, right? So I take it that is Satan's biggest weapon. I don't know if you've ever thought of that. We tend to think, if I don't go downtown, I won't meet Satan. No, Satan's around. And he's, his main weapon is accusing you. In other words, he's telling you, you're no good. Call yourself a Christian, you're useless. That is his weapon. That's his main weapon. And they overcame him with the blood of the Lamb. They didn't overcome him by saying, oh, I'm going to pray more. No, the Jesus' blood had dealt with all the accusations. He has cancelled all the handwriting that was written against me and disarmed principalities and powers. 
Hallelujah. She can't accuse me. He might try, but the blood of Jesus answers it. He's cancelled all the handwriting. It's like all the stuff I did, he's written down. Jesus on the cross cancelled it and disarmed him. He can't accuse me. Jesus, there is no condemnation. All right, so we come and say, Father. Come and say, Father. Don't come and say, oh, I'm so sorry for this. If you start with, I'm sorry for this sin, the accuser will creep up on you and say, and what about that as well? Oh, yeah, that as well. Sorry. And, and, and some people hate prayer because it's like, oh, I've got to start with all this, and oh, then there's that, and I shouldn't have done that. And it's like you take a big spade and dig a hole and jump in. And people hate prayer because, oh, it's such hard work. No, no, come and say, Father, Father. And we all know that word Abba. The Bible, it's kind of an intuitive. The Spirit comes and we cry, Abba. Abba. It's in kind of many languages. Papa, Dada. It's that word little kids say. I was in Tel Aviv airport once and I saw this Jewish guy walking across and I saw this little boy running after him and he's shouting, Abba, Abba, Abba. I thought, oh, wow. There it is. Father, I know I've got his heart. I know I've got access to him. He's my Abba. I remember once my, my about five-year-old son, Simon, he came into the room. I was sitting reading a book, and he jumped on my lap, put his arms around my neck, and said, hello, darling dad. <laughs> I've never forgotten it. I mean, years ago, I've never forgotten it. And I, and I sometimes, I don't rush into it, but I sometimes find myself using that language. Darling dad, father. See, prayers come to your father. It's the most wonderful thing. Prayer is not some heavy duty. Oh, I've got to pray. No, no, get with your father. What a privilege this is. Jesus says, shut the door and be with your father. Spend time with your father. Dig out a moment. He said, that's my time. That's when I do it. That's what I, you know, if I can. No, no, do it. Have a moment. Maybe if, you know, if you're a father, kids should know. Don't interrupt dad. It's his prayer time. That's when he does it. It's kind of in your routine. So we're not talking legalism. Legalism is a killer. Legalism ruins your Christian life. Legalism is trying to clock up marks, trying to impress God. Lord, I prayed. You know, I read a whole chapter. Am I, I, I impressive? It's irrelevant. Irrelevant. We don't do anything to impress God. Jesus has already impressed God, and I'm hidden in him. I have all the righteousness. He gave me all his righteousness. He took away all my guilt. I don't have to impress God. Jesus has done that. That's all handled. So I don't have to be a legalist. I don't have to do all that stuff. But I do discipline myself because I want to get some answers to prayer. And I want to get to know God better. So you don't do it for wrong reasons. Or you ought to. Christians are supposed to. Or you get points for doing it. No, no, no. It's irrelevant. You come to Jesus, he gives us righteousness as a gift. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He's dealt with all that. Jesus took all our guilt, took all our shame, gave us his righteousness. So we're not praying because Christians ought to pray or we get points for it. No, that's all done. Jesus has declared us righteous. But I want to pray. I want to get to know God better. And I want to get answers. So here we find Jesus is saying, now go talk to your father. Come talk to your father. I find I just want to sing to him. My praying time starts with worship. I have a hymn book there and a book of songs. I just start singing, Lord, thank you, I can call you father. I enjoy, enjoy 
that. And as I've got older, the worship time has got longer. I'm just so thrilled with what he is and what he's done. So we come to meet with Father. We come to experience his love. And then we find this. As he prayed, his prayer was based on promises. Okay, that's the next thing I noticed about Elijah. Why did he pray that it would stop raining? It's like this nation's drifting off, Lord. Get their attention. Why, why stop the rain? Well, the Bible says, back in Deuteronomy, that God would give them a land of milk and honey. He'd give them a land where the rains would fall, cities you've not built, vineyards you've not planted. It's in a wonderful, wonderful place. It's all for you. God made incredible promises to them. This is the land, the promised land I've prepared for you. Then he said this, if you go after other gods, I will shut the rain off. God had said it in his word. That's what I will do. So when Elijah prayed, he's saying, Lord, you said. Now this is the heart of biblical prayer. That's again, that we're not whistling in the dark. We're not trying to impose my will upon God. I'm saying, Lord, you said this kind of thing, and so I am now coming to you asking this. You have said it in your word. God promised he would close the rain down. Now, that happens many times in the Bible. You'll find, for instance, there's a very famous verse in Jeremiah 29, which often people like and put up in, on the wall and kind of thing. I know the plans I have for you, plans for good, not for evil, to give you a future and hope. What a wonderful promise. I know the plans I have for you, plans for good, not for evil, to give you a future and hope. Wow, thank you, Lord. What's the next verse say? The next verse says this, then you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. All right, I know the plans, but I want you to seek me. I make, I make the promises, but I want you to come after me for those promises to be fulfilled. So God makes his, his will clear, and then he says, now you come and ask me to do these things. So Philip Hughes says this, prayer is stressed over and over again in the New Testament as a vital prerequisite for the release and experience of God's power. Prayer kind of unlocks the promise. And so you'll find that uh, Jeremiah said, when the people of Israel were taken into captivity in Babylon, Jeremiah says this, it will last 70 years. That's what he says. It's good, you're going to be thrown out of the land. All these different prophets have come and warned them, warned them. This is the ultimate judgment. You're out of the land. Then he said this, after 70 years, you'll come back. Then you read in the book of Daniel, Daniel says, I was reading in the book of Jeremiah, and I realized the 70 years are up. So he didn't rush out onto the streets and say, hey, the 70 years are up. He said he set himself to seek God. For 21 days he prayed and fasted. And then an angel comes to Daniel and says, oh man, greatly beloved, ever since you sought me, ever since you set yourself to seek me, you've been heard. And God comes with power. And yeah, the time is up. What happens, you'll find in the book of Ezra, it says, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord through Jeremiah, that's how the book of Ezra starts. In order to fulfill the word through the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah, Cyrus, the most powerful emperor of his day, changed his foreign policy. And he sent these captives back to the land. God had said it would take 70 years. 
They're in a foreign land. They're in captivity. The 70 years come up. Daniel has prayed, and it starts happening. See, God had made the promise, and then people take hold of the promise. Andrew Murray, whose church was here in Cape Town, says it's as though the promises are waiting for prayer for their fulfillment. The promises are waiting for prayer. They're, they're kind of lie, waiting there for a dynamic, waiting for that response that stimulates and makes the thing come alive. That's what God is saying here. So Don, uh, Don Carson says, Paul counted on the prayers of the churches to gain for him what might otherwise not be given. So Paul writes to the churches and often he says, pray for me. Pray what? Pray Pray that a door may open for me for the gospel. You'll find that in letters that Paul wrote. Pray for me because I want to go through. I want to, I want to raise up churches here and here and here. Pray for me. And Carson is saying, Paul counted on the prayers of the churches to gain for him what might otherwise not be given. Not be given. Now, Carson believes in the sovereignty of God, but he believes that prayer affected things, and so did Paul. Pray for me, these doors will open. And so we engage, we're involved, we're part of the whole deal. We get caught up with what God wants to do. We ask and he will move in. He, God wants us to pray specifically. It's interesting to uh, notice that when uh, the friend at midnight in Jesus' uh, parable, he doesn't say, please give me some food. He says, give me three loaves. Remember somebody came, have you got food? No, I haven't, but I know someone who has. Give me three loaves. It's not just give me something. Give me. It's like ask. I read a book on prayer called Prayer, the Key to Revival by Yonggi Cho, who has this vast church in Seoul, Korea. Massive, massive church with their prayer mountain, as they call it. Great emphasis on prayer. And I, I, I read that, and he said, when I first started, he said, I... I didn't feel my prayers were being answered. And he felt God said to him, you don't ask specifically enough. I said, well, what, what? He said, well, what do you want? It's interesting that Jesus would say to the sick, what would you have me to do? You think, it's obvious, isn't it? I'm blind. Now, what do you want me to do? He, he wanted them somehow to name what they wanted. And Yonggi Chofadi learned something in that. And he said, what would I like? Well, he said, I'd like a bicycle. So I can visit my, my people. He said, I'd like a desk. I'd like a mahogany desk. And he said, and I'd like a chair. And I'd like a chair with little wheels on each of the legs so I can push back. And so it was very specific. And he said, in a very short space of time, a missionary came to him and said, we're, we're, going, uh, we're going home now. Would you like the bicycle and stuff? Things just started coming and happening. Specific things happened to him. And so he just... Uh, I said, wow, this is it, ask specifically. I remember for myself, when I, I first left secular work, uh, I, I was doing door-to-door -door evangelism, and I was, as they call it, living by faith. In other words, there was no, no guaranteed income. It was like the Muppets living with no visible means of support. And uh, I was just trusting God. And, and, I, and, and sometimes it, it didn't come, sometimes it did come. Sometimes it got scary, and I felt God spoke to me. And uh, I felt he said to me, ask, after I'd read this book, I thought, Lord, what do I ask for? And I felt he said to me, ask me for the number of verses that are in a certain psalm. And I can't remember what psalm it was. 
uh, but it was a good one. I said, Lord, I looked it up quickly. What no, this number was impressed on me. That's a good number. Whoa, that's a lot of verses here. So I said, Lord, please give me this amount. And within a few days, coming from two or three different sources through the post, came gifts that came exactly the amount that I'd asked for. And it, I too, it's so thrilling, beloved, to feel it's not just God supplies, but God, you supplied specifically what I asked for. The sense of God, God's engagement, God's involvement, God with me in it is so exciting, so stirring. God providing for us. God supplying what we need. We were looking for a building in uh, uh, my hometown of Brighton. We started a little church. We were meeting in a schoolroom, and, and we needed a, a church building. And, and I remember I saw a, a, an old mission hall, Clarendon Mission, and uh, I knew it was quite a large hall. It must have been like a 400-seater hall and had lots of other rooms and halls and corridors. It was quite a big old place. Tiny, tiny congregation in there. And I, I, I thought about that. That's the place for us. And I'm praying with my two friends. And we say, Lord, give us Clarendon Mission. And I wish this happened more frequently, but it happened less this day. We were praying, and the three of us saying, give us this place. And we suddenly knew, I knew we've got it. And I said to them, hey, we've got it, haven't we? And we, yeah, I remember sitting back on my heels. I remember it vividly. Hey, we've got it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. So exciting. Now, I'd never met the pastor. And a couple of weeks later, I get this call from the pastor. I'd like to meet you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come and have a meal with us. So he came and had a meal with us. And I thought, how am I going to get around to his building? You know? And uh, after a few pleasantries, he said to me, I've heard of your growing congregation, yeah? I wondered if you'd like our building. Oh, would we like it? Yes, please. So we went in there free. It became our building. But when we got in there, I mean, it was so run down, incredibly run down. They'd had the phone taken out because they didn't pay their bills. It was dry rot. And we had to believe God. And, and we started having gift days three times a year. And, and we were one of many people, and, and, and if there was a rich guy, I never met him. Uh, and we said, right, let's, we're going to pray for 20,000. And we had our prayer meeting Saturday mornings. We prayed, Lord, give us the 20,000 tomorrow morning in the offering. That was the way we prayed. And we had a prophecy quite early on. It said this. He said, I will use your raising the funds for this building as an anvil on which I will build your faith. And that's exactly what happened to us. We prayed and we saw, we saw 20,000, 20,000, 20,000. We kept on going for it three times a year, 20,000. And then later, we went to another building. We had to raise more, pushed up to 100,000. We saw three times a year. We saw it. I mean, we saw, we saw it grow. We grow. It's exciting. Meeting with God, praying Saturday, seeing it answered Sunday. God did an amazing thing and taught us to pray. So... We're praying fervently, yes, asking God to do it. Help us, Lord, get us through. The praying, it says in the scriptures, praying in the spirit. Now, prayer is tough. But the Puritans said, pray yourself into prayer. Men should always pray and not give up. That's what it says. Jesus said that. Men should always pray and not give up. That would be the easiest thing about prayer, giving up. No, pray, pray. And, and the Puritans said, pray yourself into prayer. And what they said was that 
The Holy Spirit's been given to us to help us to pray. It says in Romans 8, we don't know what to pray. The Spirit helps us. The Spirit helps us. And sometimes when you're praying, you feel quite limp. You feel, oh, this is deadly. I'm not making any progress. You don't feel surges of faith or anything. But to, to keep praying and to trust God, you can begin to be find that like a, an energy, like a wind filling your sail. You can begin to feel something that you think, well, this is a bit foreign to me. I, I feel I'm being helped. I feel I'm being pushed along. Praying in the Spirit. And sometimes you begin to care more and more as you're praying. And you, you feel I'm engaging with something outside of myself. Hey, this wind is filling my sail. An urgency that you feel, it doesn't come from me. It's something's helping me. Pray, it says, in the Spirit. Pray in the Spirit. Now, also it says pray with the Spirit in 1 Corinthians. Now, that's talking about praying in tongues because it, it contrasts it with praying with the understanding or praying with tongues. Sometimes we pray in tongues, not with the human understanding. It says so in 1 Corinthians. But praying in the Spirit is a kind of umbrella over the whole thing. If we're praying in our native tongue, we can still feel this help of the Spirit helping us to pray. And finding, hey, there's an energy that kicks in that helps me. And so we find that Jacob, we're told, wrestled with God. That's quite a statement, isn't it? He wrestled with God. He kind of fought God. But I, I, the one I particularly love is, is Moses. Where he, I've just written a book on Moses, and I love looking closer at Moses. You remember, Moses goes up to the mountain, he meets with God. While he's still up there, down in the valley, they make a golden calf. And they say, this is the God that brought you out. Worship this golden calf. Uh, and God says to Moses, these people, your people whom you brought out. And Moses says, no, no, your people who you brought out. It's wonderful to see this. God saying, look, look, I'll judge them. And I'll start again with you, Moses. And you'll become the leader like you're the new Abraham. I've had enough of these people. I'll start with you. Moses says, no, no. And then God says, my presence will not go with you. You can have an angel, but I'm not coming. And Moses says, if your presence doesn't come with us, we're not going anywhere. And then, and then it's an amazing verse that really stirred me. It says, God said to Moses, let me alone so I can judge them. And Moses says, no. He said, well, imagine, imagine Almighty God said, get off my back, get off, guy. And he said, no, I'm not going to. A human being, beloved, had power with God, so that God said, no, leave me alone. He won't. He refuses. He presses through and gets a wonderful answer to prayer. God does go with them. God does give them the land. But this intercessor, this wonderful battle that he fought, and God is inviting us to pray. God wants us. P.T. Forsyth, a Scottish theologian of a previous generation, said this, lose the importunity of prayer. Lose the real conflict of will and will. Lose the habit of wrestling in the hope of prevailing with God. Make it mere walking with God in friendly talk. And precious as that is, yet you tend to lose the reality of prayer. Precious as that is. He's not mocking it. Some of us will say, oh, I don't have a special time. I talk to God in the supermarket. I talk to God as I drive the car. He says, precious as that is. That's fine. But he said, if you don't know anything of this kind of pressing through, laying hold, 
will against will, as he puts it. We'll, we'll, we'll not penetrate what prayer is about. The, the privilege we're being invited to ask that you might receive. Ask that you might receive. That's what Jesus, always when Jesus talks about prayer, it's about receiving. Receiving. God wants us to receive, to press through. And then last thing here. It says, go and look three times. Now in the passage, it puts it extremely simply. This says, go three times. I mean, seven times, seven times. And obviously, it just says it like that. Go seven times. But really, it must mean go and there's nothing. And there's blue sky. And he prays some more. Now go again. Nothing. I mean, seven times. I think after three or four times, you think, forget it. Then pray, pray. Seven times. The church we were in, when, when we wanted to get a warehouse, because we'd outgrown this uh, uh, Clarendon mission, and we saw a warehouse in the center of town. We asked informally, can we bid for that? And they said, yeah. And so we took, again, an offering which blew me away, the money we raised in our offering. And then we put in our formal application, and the council said, you can't have that. That's an industrial building. We're not giving that to a church. I mean, they were very dismissive, quite mocking. As if we a church. That's industrial property. Come on. They dismissed us. And we said, can we appeal against your decision? And they said, you'll be wasting your time. Because, uh, you know, if it was 60-40, it's worth appealing. But, you know, 70, 30, 80, 20, this isn't even 80%, uh, 20%. It's 100%. The whole council is 100% refusal. An appeal is a waste of time. So we wrote our appeal. And we prayed. I mean, we kept praying. We prayed and prayed. And uh, our application went to a Mr. Mumford, whom I never met, but he was very prayed for. And we waited. And our appeal won through. Completely won through. And, and not only did we get what we asked for, but we got other things. that we said, Wow, this is amazing. The, the church was so strengthened. And say, hey, look what God will do. When we opened our building, we did it up, turned it into a lovely meeting place, and we invited the council to our opening. That didn't come. But uh, it was a wonderful display of the faithfulness of God in the midst of a very secular society. God answered prayer. God worked. God stepped in. Because we kept on seeking God, asking him to do what only he would do. And so this seven times thing, I know for myself, we wanted a house when we moved into Brighton. And I put in a bid for a house in the spring. And, and I, they just turned down my, my offer. It was too low. No, no, no. And there was a park behind the house. And I used to go and play football with my kids. And I'd go and stand and look over this fence. And I'd say, give me this house, Lord. Give me this house. And I'd be out around there with the kids playing. Give me this house. And then went right through that summer. And then in the autumn, they got in touch with me. Does that offer still stand? I said, yes, it does. Okay, you can have it. They dropped our offer. Hey, we just kept praying. We kept asking. Now, I think we find it difficult that sense of keeping on asking. But Jesus gave two parables. There's the parable, as we spoke, of the friend at midnight. Someone says, have you got some food? No, I haven't. 
but I know somebody who has. Give me three loaves. Jesus told this parable. Give me three loaves. And the guy inside says, no, go away. Give me three loaves. Go away, go away. Give me three loaves. Go away, I'm in bed with my family. Give me three loaves. And it says, he was heard, not because he's a friend, but because of his shameless persistence. You better give it to him. Because Jesus told that parable. He also told the parable of what they called the unjust judge, when a poor widow comes to a judge and says, give me justice. And she says, go away. Give me justice. Go away, woman. Give me justice. Clear off. Give me justice. Then the judge, the judge says, this woman's going to bruise me. You better give it to her. Now, you see, for most of us, we think, I don't think of God like that. I don't think of God as an unjust judge or a reluctant guy who's gone to bed. But Jesus told those parables. See, I know I don't think of God like that, but Jesus told two parables. The Bible often says two witnesses. You've got to take notice. There are two things that say God wants you to go after him. God wants you to press through. God wants you to persist. These are wonderful invitations that Jesus gave. Again, Andrew Murray. Oh, what a deep, heavenly mystery this is of persevering prayer. The God who has promised, who longs, whose fixed purpose is to give the blessing, holds it back. He trains us in the school of answer delayed to find out how our perseverance really does prevail and what the mighty power is we can wield in heaven if we will but set ourselves to it. Again, D.A. Carson says, we tend to be like the child who rings the doorbell and runs away. S sticking with it. One last quote and I've finished. Yonggi Cho again in that book I referred to says this, in prayer the Christian enters into the priestly function of providing an earthly base for God's heavenly interests. This age has become the battleground for two opposing forces. God has a group in the foreign land that is able to bring the influence of the age to come into this age. The way the world experiences the dominion of Christ in this present age is through the exercising of the church's authority, particularly in prayer. So the illustration of that would be when Jesus says to the disciples, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me, now go. Make disciples of all nations. And they begin, 3,000, 5,000, wow, here we go. Then the Sanhedrin say, don't you dare preach anymore. You know, we've just crucified him, we'll crucify you. Don't you dare preach anymore. They try and stop the whole church, and that's the end of it. And you read in Acts chapter 4, they cried out to God. Jesus said, I have all authority. And these fishermen from Galilee, I mean, they're not at home in the big city. They're not home with the Sanhedrin. But they come to Jesus. They say, oh, sovereign Lord. That wonderful prayer in Acts chapter 4. Oh, sovereign Lord. And the word translated is the word despotis, from which we get our word despot which is an ugly word because we associate a despot with something ugly. But it just means absolute power. Oh, sovereign Lord, 
See their threats. Hear what they're saying. But you stretch forth your hand to heal. Do signs and wonders. And it says they prayed and the place shook. And the power of God fell upon them and on they go. They preach and many, many more saved. Out they go, city after city. They start turning the world upside down. But the, the way, as Cho puts it, the battleground, the way the world experiences the authority of Christ is through the praying church. That's how, that's how the people get to know. So, beloved, we live in a day where, yeah, people have turned their backs on God. Certainly in the UK, it's really tragic, the moral decadence that's coming in and more and more laws endorsing it, things happening. That you think, what is this happening? That's what's happening in Elijah's day. When, hey, worshipping God is illegal. Illegal. We're worshipping Baal now. And he said, the God before whom I stand. And he brings the presence of God. And beloved, I believe it's our call. Against the backdrop of increasing secular attitudes, unbelief. It's not that we just are religious and we believe. That we have the power, ability to affect things. And prayer is our major weapon. To pray that this might excite and stir you. Let's just pray, shall we? Father, thank you so much. I want to thank you for this church. I thank you for its beautiful worship. I thank you for dear friends gathered here. Thank you, Lord, that we love you, that you love us, that you're for us. And Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that your word will do us good, will benefit from it. It will stay with us, motivate, stir us. Encourage us when we find it tough. Lord, let your spirit keep on stirring us. Let us more and more become a powerful force for your great glory, we pray. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.